0: A reading from the book of Exodus. But Moses said to God, If I now come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, What's this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God continued, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how all generations will remember me.
1: Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. It's really lovely to be with those of you who are here in person, those of you who are with us online, and those of you for whom it is Tuesday and you really enjoyed the Packer game. So glad that you're here. Whenever you come, it is the right time. Uh, we are in a series called Rebuilding Faith After Deconstruction. And it is a process that we are going through together. So many of us have had to deconstruct the toxic elements of the faith that we have grown up with by ourselves. But actually, if we do it together, if we take those things apart, we have a better chance at rebuilding a kind of faith that is healing, that brings wholeness, that has truth, and that dissects that harm and understands where it came from. Now last week, we talked about the Bible, and one of my big pieces of encouragement was to stop worshipping your Bible that so many of us have been told to worship the Scriptures and not the God to whom the Scriptures point. But that leaves a question. Who is God? Scripture becomes an easy stand-in for God because it's so much more tangible, but also because we can mold it and argue it to our own influences. But if the Scriptures aren't God but pointing to God... If the word isn't the words of scripture, but the word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, who is with us and in relationship with us. How do we wrap our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our community around the God who is worthy of our worship? So when you think about God, I want to know what you've been told. And I want to know what you experienced. So I'm going to ask you two questions. These are going to be real questions. I want you to shout it out in person. I want you to write it out in the comments. I want you to think about what you know about God, what feels true and right, and I want you to tell me what you've been told about God that you're not so sure about or feels toxic. All right, so what do you know about God that feels true and right? Who is God? God is love. God is, love. God is creative. God is creative always there, ever present. Anything else we feel confident about? Who is God? God is inside of you. God is a jealous God. Comforting. Bigger than we could imagine. Forgiving. All right. Now, what have you been taught or told about God that feels a little icky or you're not so sure about? God is a jealous God. That's a God. God is a jealous God. I think that's a classic. We'll need to unpack. God is angry. God is a man. God is confident. And I missed one. You should fear God. Smiteful. He's he. He's a he. God uses he, him pronouns, right? We haven't even been told that explicitly, but we've learned it implicitly over the years. God is punishing you. Yeah. These are a lot of very different and conflicting sets of ideas and feelings about God. And one is coming from your experience, your relationship, and one is coming from that tower of Jenga blocks that we need to really re-examine and see what needs to come apart, Right? Now, in this series, one of the most important concepts that we've been talking about is first and second naivete. And I apologize, its is going to be a real philosophical sermon again, but you guys are going to hang with me. It's going to be great. So first and second naivete is a process of knowing, a process of belief, a process of maturing in our spirituality. The first naivete, when we are naive the first time, is when we are introduced to concepts and we receive them like a child. Things are black and white. They're simple and rigid. Authority is external, um, and it's, it's absolute. Everything's very othered. And then we have to go through the valley. We have to look at those beliefs with a critical lens. And then we emerge on the other side, when we have done the work into what recur, uh, the philosopher calls second naivete. It is a second kind of openness, a a widening of belief, where there is room for nuance, where belief is strong and strong enough for doubt to coexist and not to threaten it, where authority is relational and not othered, where things have all kinds of layers and textures instead of being so concrete and black and white. Now, in that concept of first naivete, the church really likes to hang out there for as long as it possibly can. Concrete authority, black and white, externalized. And that is where so many of us get our teachings and our instruction about who God is. And God becomes the ultimate black and white, concrete, other, dictatorial, simplistic authority. And in the widespread patterns of abuse of power and authority within the church. Leadership are incentivized to give an image of God that looks a lot like them. Then they tell you to be like Christ, which means be like them. And so if you have people in positions of privilege and power and authority telling you that God is like them and that you should be like them and you can't, then you feel that disconnect always because maybe you can't be like them. Maybe you can't because you're a woman or because you're queer or because you're trans or you're BIPOC or you're disabled. And whatever may be the power differential between you and those who get to speak for God becomes a gulf between you and the God who made you. And God continues to be portrayed as the kind of authority we are all trained to defer to in earthly empires, which is to say, male and straight and white and so many other things. But what if God is more like a queer, trans, BIPOC disabled woman than the picture you've been given of a powerful, bearded white man condescending to you from the heavens? Now, God seemed to be pretty clear on revealing some things about them when they became incarnate. Because if God is who we've been told by the American church, if American Christian patriots are right about who God is, if the Christian nationalists have any argument at all, then Jesus should have been born to a Roman emperor. But instead, he was born to an unmarried teenage Jewish girl in rural occupied Palestine. So what do we know about God? Who is God? One of the questions is how we know about God. Now, some folks that got real uncomfortable uh, with our teachings about how to differentiate between the scriptures and God were sort of like, well, how am I supposed to know about God if I reject his word, if I reject the Bible? And first of all, I'm not telling you to to reject the Bible. Everything we teach here is extremely biblical. But second of all, if we were getting these ideas from the Bible, our God, our picture of God would look a lot more like an unwed teenage Jewish girl in rural occupied Palestine than like a Roman emperor. And so there is a disconnect. Where are these ideas about who God is coming from? Because it's not actually the scriptures. The scriptures reveal who God is by talking about God being forgiving, being a God who provides justice. The fruits of the Spirit are described as patience and kindness and goodness. 1 John says that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So know that when you're saying that to yourself, God is love, God is love, know that that comes directly from the scriptures. The Psalms say that God heals us and redeems us. All of these concepts are relational. Who does God forgive? Among whom does God provide justice? With whom is God patient? To whom is God kind? God is love, and what is love without relationship? So how do we know about God? If we say that we know about God from the scriptures and the scriptures tell us about God and the scriptures tell us they are divine because it says so in the scriptures, we end up in a real circular situation. So we actually have to have some confidence that comes from beyond the words on the page. So how do we have confidence to look for the God of love, the God who is love? Now I believe that we look to our relationship with God, the God who makes themselves known to us. But this was not the history of knowing God that the empire picked up. The way that ideas about God really came to us, came to this place in this moment, has a lot to do with our understanding of philosophy. Philosophy, especially white European philosophy, was really concerned with proving the existence of God. And... This has shaped our ideas about God here and now hundreds of years later. When I was in college, I went to a philosophy school. I've read a lot of philosophy. And after the Greeks, you got to start with the Greeks, you always end up in medieval Europe. And there was a lot of confusion among my classmates about why we were reading so much Christian philosophy. We had some pushback. Some people, especially people with church hurt, were like, I didn't come to philosophy school to talk more about God, all right? And our professors were like, listen, this was what philosophy in that time and place was about. Because the philosophical understandings, all of that work took place within the hierarchies of the dominant church. So everything post-Greek that we were reading That was European, was Christian. And and to understand what has come since in both the Christian and non Christian worlds of philosophy and so many other things, including the church, you have to understand that part. So here we are reading Thomas Aquinas, who is, in addition to like proving the existence of God. Entering into a very serious debate about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. And truly that sounds like a play on like how many cherubs does it take to screw in a light bulb. But like that was the state of philosophy at the time. These were the questions that were seriously considered. Now Thomas, Tommy, I'll call him, was a big fan of Aristotle. And Greek philosophy, which was not only kind of in the ether during the time of the writing of the New Testament, but also then influenced philosophy that came afterward, Aristotle was a big part, right? So Aristotle wrote about perfection. What is the nature of perfection? And like obviously God is perfect, right? That's something that we're told to take for granted. So God is perfect. Aristotle is writing about perfection. Aristotle says perfection can never change because you can't become more perfect. And if you became less perfect, you would no longer be perfect. Obviously, Aristotle has never met Beyoncé if he thinks that no one can become more perfect than perfect. (laughs) But Thomas took that and ran. All right? So... Tommy is thinking, okay, God is perfect. Aristotle says perfection can never change. All right, perfection cannot be impacted, affected, or changed by anything. Full stop. So Tom gives us an example. He's like, okay, so there's a dog and a pillar. Again, just to remind you where you are in history, if you've if you've gotten misplaced, we're thinking pillars. All right, so there's a dog and a pillar. And Tom is is kind of comparing and contrasting their nature. Now, if the pillar vanished, the dog would notice and therefore be impacted by it and therefore change. But if the dog and the pillar are there and the dog wanders off, the pillar is unchanged, does not notice, does not care, is not impacted. Therefore, according to Thomas Aquinas, one of the most prominent and impactful philosophers of this time that is still affecting the way we think about God now, God is more like a stone pillar than a living dog. Because God cannot be changed because God is perfect. And if you follow pure logical reasoning, you can understand how he got there. But that leaves us with a God who is perfect, unchanging, whole, complete, uncorruptible, which many of us have been told, but also cold, uncaring, unaffective, and not very perceptive, and like actually dead inside, or at least not alive. And honestly, this goes against everything in Scripture, it goes against everything I've ever experienced of God especially everything I've experienced of God in the person and life and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these ideas have deeply influenced our church's teachings. So how do we reclaim our understanding of God if the image we have of a cold, distant, uncaring God, a God who is so perfect that he can't be bothered with us, but yet somehow is angry and judging us and evaluating our every move. That's where the logic part of the philosophy breaks down. How, how do we find our way back to the God who is? We can lay down those ideas. Those ideas about our human understanding of perfection as leading us to a pillar, to an unfeeling pillar. We have to lay that down. That Jenga block isn't going to hold up. We've got to lay that down. So how do we find an understanding in its place? Who is God if not this cold, unfeeling perfection beyond our reach? We have to start somewhere else. And the God who is Jesus, the God who reveals themselves through the scriptures, the God who reveals themselves through creation that God is relational. That God is not a pillar. Everything we know about God is that God is with us, but God is with God's self. This is where we get the ideas of the Trinity, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. That is no isolated pillar. That is a God of perfection in relationship. And that's actually something we really claim as central about who God is, is the Trinity. And if nothing else, we claim the the divinity of Jesus. Here at Zao, we start with Jesus, right? We are Jesus-rooted, justice-centered, radically inclusive. So if we want to know who God is, we start with Jesus. Now, Jesus, who is God who came to be with us, who took on flesh, doesn't sound like he's just not impacted by anything because he's so above it. Right? Jesus ate with people, cried with people, prayed with people, healed people. Our entire understanding of Jesus is one who takes on risk to be impacted by us, including into the cross. The wounding, the torture of failed relationship, the abuse of a police state and a public execution— That does not sound like a God whose perfection lies in being unattached or so above us. God is nothing like the pillar. Because everything we know about relationality, we know from love. It takes vulnerability to be truly affected by another. So our God not only is changeable, because we can impact them. Vulnerable. Because that impact might not always feel good. Our God is relational. And that is so different from what we've been taught. We've somehow been taught that our God is above us and condescending to us. And, and so beyond change. And we've been taught that we can screw up at any moment. That we will make God angry and that God will reject us or harm us. But where does that come from? Because it's not coming from Jesus. And it's not coming from the scriptures. The scriptures describe a God who actually like gets into it and is like, hey, this is my plan. And Moses is like, uh, I don't like that plan. What if we did a different thing? And God's like, this is my plan. What if you found one good person, one good person And God changes God's mind. God is in relationship, and the scriptures attest to that over and over again. The scriptures are a collection of our relationship to one another as we seek after God, our accounting of our relationship with God. And at the heart of relationship is vulnerability. And so, you may have been taught that God was powerful. What if the first thing that you were taught was that God is vulnerable? You may have been taught That God is unchangeable. What if the first thing you were taught was that God is relational? That God is with us? Well, if we want to begin with the scriptures, to understand who God is, then God has something to say for God's self. In Exodus, this is where we were reading from today, Exodus chapter 3, God is talking to Moses. And Moses is like you want me to do a big thing all right and I, I gotta come in with a little bit of you know credentials so when I come in and tell them that God is is telling me to do this what God am I supposed to say who 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 do you say that you are and and so God is put in a, in a position to claim a name for the first time in Scripture So God names God's self and says Yahweh. And our best understanding of that in English is a phrase that's often translated in the scriptures I am who I am. I am who I am. Now that sounds somewhat final right? That sounds somewhat pillory. I am who I am maybe it's Popeye. I am what I am. But it it seems kind of like, yeah, I am what I am. What are you going to do about it? Right? And that fits with this idea that we have of this unchanging, un, impenetrable, non-vulnerable God. But we, t- we have understood this in English in this extremely limited way. Because if you go to the Greek, and you can do this, you can Google this. You can go to Strong's Greek. That's like the most respected kind of resource on, uh, on kind of basic Greek translation, most widely used. And Strong's Greek's definition of I am, that first part of the phrase, and the last, is to fall out, which I think is really great, to come to pass, become, or be. So we could say that this is I happen, That I happen. It is a much more active verb. We could translate it as I become who I become. And that movement, that activity, that that relational change is built right in there. God is in process. God is related. God is not static because static would have to be removed from us. God is with us. And that impacts God just as much as it impacts us. We are together in relationship, and that is a good thing. And yes, that makes God vulnerable. But God is still powerful, and God is still good. And we are called to understand our relational God, the God who is becoming. The God who is becoming involves us. The God who becomes through the act of creation. The God who becomes through the act of incarnation. The God who becomes in relationship to love, to us. That is who God is. God is movement and vulnerability and relationship. And guess how, the, how we have decided to translate that phrase into English in our scriptures not just in that moment when we're really breaking it down, but when that comes up, the name of God, what is the convention in English to translate that becoming, that process, that relationship, that risk, that vulnerability? We translate it as Lord. We translate it as Lord, which is our word from white feudal Europe for a man who has power over others. We have made God small. We have made God simple. We have turned God into a pillar. And sure, we've knelt down before that pillar. But we've missed the God of love who is with us. we missed the God of love who is in process with us. We've missed the God of love who is right here, ready to be impacted by our love, ready to co-create with us, ready to be a part of something that we've been invited to, something divine, something holy, something perfect, something that moves. Our God is bigger and better than what you've been told. Our God is smaller and more intimate than what you've been told. Our God is perfect and becoming. Our God is strong and vulnerable. Our God is in relationship to you. Our God is love, and you know who love is. Don't let them lie to you anymore. Will you pray with me? God who is love. God who is patient and kind. God who is forgiving and just. God, we thank you for your revelation to us of who you are. And we pray that we could sort through with wisdom what is true from what is empire. God, we pray that your scriptures would point us to you. We pray that that you would point us to you through your creation, including one another. And God, I pray that our trust would be in the love that binds us all together, the love that is the breath in our lungs animating us, the love that is the heart of your divinity and of all creation. God, let us lay down those those things that do not serve us anymore, These metaphors and analogies that take us deeper into our own human logic, but further and further from the truth of your relational love. But God, please show up with us. Be with us. Help us to feel who you are, even if we have to take apart what we think we know. Amen.